In an effort to best support our audience members, we'd like to offer a content warning for certain themes and subject matter contained within this episode. Please check the show notes for a detailed description and timestamps, and take care of yourselves. You're listening to the Intergenerational Queer Audio Project. Presented by Kaiser Permanente's Educational Theater Program. In collaboration with Oregon Children's Theater. Written by and for a diverse queer community. This is a collection of audio art, songs, stories, poems, reflections. This is a message to our younger selves. We ask that you listen on their behalf. My name is Brenda, and my pronouns are she, they. I am honored to be chosen to participate in the Intergenerational Queer Audio Project. It's been really interesting to be here. I've got to tell you that I'm 80 years old and have been a bit overwhelmed by all of the letters that people use to define themselves these days. L, G, B, T, Q, I, plus? Wow, there's even a plus. I guess that means there's more to come. When I came out, there was just L and G and some fringe people who were B. I didn't know one trans person in my time. I'm sure they were around, but I think they were even more hidden than we were. I suspect many of them just passed in their chosen sexual identification. What I would like to talk about today is my personal experience of coming out in the 70s. If I had a message to tell my younger self, it would be, don't let fear stand in the way of your own authenticity. I wasted so many good years trying to fit in with people who could never accept me being who I really am. Here is my story. My first experience with lesbianism was in college when I first heard about two women who were discovered together being perverted. The next day, they were gone, expelled from school, sent home to their parents in disgrace. We later learned what happened to them from letters they sent to their college friends. Psychiatrists, insane asylums, electric shock treatment, severe punishment from their parents, and made to promise not to speak of the event ever again. There was never a word to describe who they were, only perverts. No one had heard the label lesbian or even gay. They were all just a bunch of perverts. That was in 1958. I graduated college in 1962. I moved directly to San Francisco to get far away from New York. I heard that there were bars in San Francisco where women perverts went to meet each other. But because of the rumors I believed in college, I was too afraid to ask where the bars were, even though I was extremely curious. About four years later, I wrote a letter of confession to my college counselor, 
telling her how I had strange feelings towards some of my women friends. No answer. I rushed home every day looking for a letter of response from her. I did that for months. I finally decided if this woman who I revered could not acknowledge my letter, then I must certainly bury those thoughts deeper. I did. I took the plunge and did what was expected of me in 1969. I married a man. That marriage began to fall apart when I joined a radical feminist rap group called Eve's Fist. There were women in that group who called themselves lesbians. Finally, a label I could explore. I learned that the label lesbian was taken from the Isle of Lesbos, just off of Greece. There resided in 600 BC, a female poet named Sappho, who wrote erotic poems about loving women. In those days, she was revered as a poet and even Plato spoke highly of her. Much of her work was destroyed when Christianity came into power. Another label surfaced in San Francisco in the 70s, Dyke. At first, it was a slur toward lesbians, but eventually became a proud, self-identifying label of butch women. Enough history. The radical feminist group and all of the books I was led to gave me the courage to pursue Martha. We had a brief fling and I was smitten. It felt like home. I had finally found my tribe. I confessed my eternal love for Martha and she told me she was just experimenting before she married a man. I was devastated. Shortly thereafter, I moved to San Francisco to see if I could find these bars that I'd heard about 10 years ago. And what a time I had in San Francisco in the 70s. I learned how to be a real lesbian. My new friends taught me well. They also taught me about the need to protect my closet identity. They told me their personal stories that brought them to San Francisco heart-crushing stories of being outed and shamed, needing to leave town, being immediately fired from their jobs, families ghosting them, shunned by previous friends, no longer being allowed to see their children, custody battles in court and always losing, psychiatric institutions and shock treatments, being put in jail. They all had to leave town in shame, never to return. Being discovered was the worst thing that ever happened to them. After hearing their stories, I learned to hide well. I lived in constant fear of being found out. Around that time, Stonewall happened. Gays, lesbians, and trans people in New York City had had enough of police brutality, bar raids, and going to jail. They finally revolted, and there began gay pride. 
they began marching around the country, encouraging everyone to come out of their safe yet uncomfortable closets. One by one, I watched my braver brothers and sisters pronounce the words, I am gay, I am lesbian, I am bisexual. I knew no trans people in those days. Their coming out was down the road. We started bravely coming out of our closets. We started marching. We started acting like we had pride whenever we felt it or not. It was so challenging to feel pride after so many years of shame and hiding. But we did. We acted into our internalized pride. We were finally proud of who we were. Today's LGBTQI plus youth are proudly standing on the backs of those brave men and women who risked everything to begin to get some meager acceptance or at least some tolerance. Following generations took the gay pride torch and carried it to unbelievable heights. They are continuing to fight to have any of us who are not in the middle of humanity be free to be exactly who we believe ourselves to be. To all of you younger people, I say thank you. What a gift. Hi, I'm Vanessa. She, her pronouns. This song came about as a reflection on what I'd say to my younger self. I was teamed up with a small group during this project, and in conversations we had about anorexia and body image, my mind wondered, what's the system behind this? What's making femme-presenting people feel this way? Because if it's so common among so many of us, there's got to be something larger going on. I thought about how the system in this country was once set up to where women completely depended on men for survival and how our identities became completely obliterated legally. And my mind also went to reflecting on how femme-presenting people were valued more for their looks and bodies and physical appearance over anything else and how all these ideas merged together, like how the focus is on our looks in order to get chosen by a man as a means to our own survival. And then the link between becoming invisible on paper, legally, was showing up in our becoming invisible physically, via anorexia and other ways of self-harm. It occurred to me how this is an old system, one that's not true anymore, at least not completely, but it's as if we were trained as if it's in our DNA to still play by the rules of this old game that we no longer have to play. So we need to shed this old paradigm and shift into what's current, what's now, this new reality we're in and helping to continue to improve. We no longer have to be so outward focused on pleasing others in order to merely survive. We can now step into our own, look for our own approval of ourselves and just be who we are, be who we want to be, be who we are naturally, and love our bodies how they are. In that space, this song was born. There was a time when femmes alike couldn't own but were owned. 
had not nor vote nor rhyme nor reason stripped bare of our name our identity made plain to become a missus to his mister invisible fittest made the wittiest lame to be perfect was the game our genius maintained invisible behind perfect lips perfect tips the hair so fair flat belly no jelly what a game there's no shame who's to blame say his name say my name then stop old school old rules old tools no longer serve us be done with the game be the shame be done with the pain be done just done hi i'm anna i use she her pronouns and i'm 15. i recently discovered how much i love poetry and how much it has helped me process what i've been through in life it seems in this world so much of our value is based on things like money and salaries and how high you're ranked in different parts of life. To my younger self and my current self and everyone in the world feeling like their worth equates to a number, this is for you. I am a girl who is defined by numbers. When the world tells you that your worth adds up to zero, you force yourself to find a way to make it count, and I've been counting for a very long time. It started with that little five-year-old, her head full of dark thoughts, her biggest secret, that she had to jump up and down, up and down 256 times before school every day, or her family would die. Because two times two is four times four is 16 times 16 is 256. And for some reason that number was good. Good enough to save my mom from a car crash every day for a year. And to this day, the volume can't be on an odd number without tears involved and memories of those dark thoughts that plagued my mind so young. Or in second grade when my best friend moved away and no one talked to me anymore. I would sit on the concrete benches and count the seconds until I could go inside. 60 seconds in a minute times 30 minutes is 1,800 seconds until the recess bell rings and pretty quickly I learned to count that high. To the 12 year old, 
who spent her afternoons researching the top 10 ways to burn 100 calories. Calories, the calories in licking an envelope and toothpaste, the calories in flavorless soup crackers or a single pretzel. I had lost my mind in a sick game of the easiest way to fade my body into nothingness. A mental calculator was formed and it still hasn't gone away. To that tiny little square of plastic that lies in the corner of every bathroom and serves no purpose but to tell me what a failure I am that mocks my fullness, that mocks me because there is a sense of nostalgia in looking at the scale and the fact that it shouldn't be this hard to just walk away but it mocks my body that no longer looks the part of being sick and shows a flashing number that tells me just how worthless I am. From the swim meets, I stopped doing well in because I'm four foot 10. I stopped growing at the age of 11. I stopped feeding myself. I stopped taking care of my body. And as the muscles got eaten away, my times on the clock got slower and slower. To when I was at a sleepover in seventh grade, and everyone started rating the boys in our class. One to 10, ooh, he's hot. What do you think, Anna? To freezing and hiding and shutting down and wondering what the hell that scale meant and hiding from pretty girls today because I was supposed to understand. Or the days where I sat by myself in a cafeteria for two years straight, watching everyone crowd into the spaces around me while I had an entire table to myself. Like I had some kind of deadly contagious disease, reading hundreds of books with hundreds of chapters and thousands of pages numbers that blurred out the loneliness and friendships that have been torn from my fingers despite how much love I put into keeping them alive, a mental tally of all the people that have had complete control over my mind, one that I have put my foot down upon and refused to let get any bigger. To report cards, those numbers will never be enough. Those numbers show the percentage of value that I will never be listed in black and white. How much I failed myself because no matter how many times people tell me that they don't matter, that they don't define me, they are the only thing that will ever define me. These numbers make up my existence, my value, like my whole life is a test. And for some reason, no matter how hard I try, I keep on failing because the number of notes I can sing without my voice cracking will never be enough. The number of shitty things I've been through will never be enough. Like life is a contest of who got it the worst. And I just keep adding and adding and adding and it doesn't matter how high that number is, it will never be enough. It seems so simple from the outside to stop paying so much attention to these numbers, but I've never been able to. My mind just likes to calculate things. I can't stop calculating every damn thing, but no one knows these numbers except me. So maybe one day I'll learn how to clear the calculator. Set yakonakul means how are you feeling in this moment in Kankobal. Ankobal is an indigenous Mayan language that my family speaks and that I am trying to learn to help preserve this ancestral sacred language. I am a descendant of the Ankobal Maya Konop. Konop means community. 
from Mayalan, also known as Guatemala, the colonizer name. My name is Meli, and I use any pronouns. In this moment, I invite you to breathe with me. These are the words that I got for you. I'm done not speaking my truth. It's true, and this self-doubt got me thinking and feeling ways that got me all twisted. Second-guessing myself like it's a competition. Mira, self-doubt, you need to shut your mouth. You should know there ain't no space for you to even come around. So don't even waste your breath. Wait. As a matter of fact, that don't even make sense. You've infiltrated my mind, Naval, soul, Bikan, body, Mimanil and spirit, Bishan. Got me associating words like waste to my humanity. Now this has got me thinking that maybe I am you and you are me. I can feel that you weren't always here. What has brought you into existence? What traumas are still sustaining you? What's it gonna take to heal you, heal me, heal us? You know what? I hope you take that breath against us cause know that I'll make sure it's our last. Cause we're not a waste like you want me to believe. It's the best damn breath we've ever taken. One that's actually filled our body with life, a rebirth. Destruction of what has been suffocating us, turning my own breath against me. But don't get it twisted. This is a destruction to replace what is with what once was. This is not a destruction to replace what is love with what is no self-control, power, and fear. This is the return. This poem is about me realizing that the self-doubt I'm speaking to is actually not separate from the me that I want to uplift. Like the self-doubt is my shadow self, it is me trying to communicate to me that there's something that is hurting and self-doubt is coming up to the surface to let me know that, hey, you are experiencing a lack of self kamkulal which means love and belief, etc. There is something here for you to heal. To me, in past moments, I felt it was a message of how abusive and neglectful and dismissive I can be towards myself. And when my body, mi manil, soul, bikan, spirit, bishan, heart, bishanek, is trying to tell me something. This self-doubt voice is still abusive, but in this poem, I honor the self-doubt with the intent of healing that abuse, to honor what it's trying to communicate to me and the pain that needs attention, and no side-eyeing it, to honor self-doubt for doing its job as a messenger, just like all other feelings, like happiness and grief. Yo Dios, gracias, thank you. This is Anna again. Growing up, I had a narrative in my head that I hated love songs. I could never imagine myself inside that world of falling in love. I couldn't, and I didn't want to relate. But as I've gotten a little older, I realize that it's not that I hate every love song in existence. I just hate how they all feel the same. I wanted to feel like the main character in stories and songs, and I wanted to challenge the heteronormativity that plagues so many pieces of art and creativity. So I wrote a song that feels true to myself, 
and made a way to invite this world that I pushed away for so long into my life with kindness. This is my song, Shattered Pieces. I could spend an eternity lost in her eyes. It's 2 a.m. and I'm thinking about her smile and how there's me in all my emptiness, me in all my broken beauty, me. And who would ever want to see? So maybe I carve myself away until there's nothing left. Maybe I make sure that I fix all of the shattered pieces. Glue back together the fragments of a girl who could be whole for you. So maybe I shut my mouth and let them do what they do better. So maybe I drown in shame so one day we might be together. And maybe I fade away so I can be enough for you. This is Vanessa again, she, her pronouns. Just before we started working on this project, an episode on Jada Pinkett Smith's Red Table Talk on Facebook Watch came out with Nisi Nash. The episode was called I'd Never Been With A Girl Before. And Nisi and her wife were sharing about how their relationship came to be. Nisi talked about how she had been married twice before to men, before ever being attracted to a woman. 
I was so intrigued by the episode because this type of story isn't mainstream, or at least not the type of story I've heard very often. But it was very much along the same lines of my own story. And I felt like it was a sign. A sign that I needed to do this project so that stories like mine are also heard and can help others feel like their stories are valid too. Or know that people's stories aren't always as clear-cut for all of us. Some people's stories fit the clear-cut version of knowing and others do not. And they're both perfectly okay and perfectly normal. This is my story. I took a gender test in a psychology class my senior year of college back in 2005. The results said that gender conforming wise, I fit neither the male end of the spectrum nor the female end of the spectrum, even though I was very into my feminine traits at the time, but rather fell into the dead center middle, not even somewhere in between the middle and the female side, but dead center in between the two genders and into the androgynous category. My male teacher asked me how I felt about that and I said it actually made a lot of sense and that it pointed out something in me that didn't get seen through the clothes, the hair, the heels, the makeup, and how feminine I appeared on the outside. I'm also a Gemini, I thought. Fast forward 16 years later, I'm working on this project and I remember that moment in college and think, hey, I'm also ambidextrous too, but I've been trained to use my right hand, so... Ding, 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 cue the fireworks and the huge light bulb over my head turning on. I've also been trained in heterosexuality. My brain thought inside of that box, the heterosexuality box. I wasn't not attracted to dudes, so... I mean, yeah, I was caught off guard and got super into that sex scene in the TV series called House with Olivia Wilde's character and her female date that suddenly flashed on our TV screen late one night. I don't know what that means, and shrugged foolishly when the husband beside me was up in arms about why I was into that. I did kiss a few girls in college, but I wasn't attracted to them. They just started kissing me, not the other way around. Once I did start becoming attracted to women, my brain was so trained in the heterosexual normative world that I didn't even recognize my feelings. I was having the feelings, seeing myself have the feelings, completely feeling the feelings, but it just wasn't sinking in. I wasn't thinking about it or reflecting on what does it mean that I'm having these feelings. They were just happening. And I was just super zen, present moment about it. As if my brain didn't know how to process those feelings. And so my brain just didn't even think about them. Just stored them somewhere outside the box for later. And as I was having the feelings, it wasn't even like I was experiencing any shame either. So... It wasn't like I was trying to repress anything. I was totally enjoying feeling the feelings. I just legit wasn't getting it. It was just not sinking in. And it continued to not sink in until this one day when I was catching up with two friends at a coffee shop. One of them explained this alternative experience of souls recognizing souls, almost like a spiritual knowing when you meet someone, a soul recognition. That clicked for me. After we said goodbye, left the coffee place and I was alone back in the privacy of my own car, this thought finally drifted down from the ethers and into my conscious thinking brain. What does it mean that it resonated so much? And then as if on cue, a multitude of memories that hadn't been processed of all the times I'd liked a girl came flooding in as fast as if it were one of those near-death flashbacks you hear about when someone's life and all their memories flash before their eyes. But this hyperspeed flashback of memories was specific just to this. And I thought, oh, I like girls. 
And it's as if my whole being gave a huge sigh, like, ah, finally, she got it. Be a little quicker next time, would you? You're like 35. Nah, that's just a naysayer in me. No shaming allowed here. I accept myself and the process this all took. It's so real and authentic that it doesn't even fit the typical coming out story. But what does fit? Or is that just another narrative made by heterosexuals that gets written into movies and TV shows but isn't even authentic? Or at least not how it goes down for everyone. As this all was thinking in more that day in my car, the soul recognition part that my friend had explained now gave me a deeper understanding of what I had experienced when I first laid eyes on my ex-husband. It was a soul recognition. I thought it was love at first sight. That's the terminology I had at the time, the vocab I was working with, which led to my level of understanding the experiences I was having and what they meant. It explained the extreme intensity of the magnetic pull I felt towards him, which at the time completely baffled me as he wasn't even quote unquote my type, but it's not about the physicality, it's on a soul level. And then over the next few weeks and months, I realized how many people already knew this about me How could other people know this about me before even I knew this about me? That was a trip. I remembered people close to me looking all expectant and excited happy as if they were thinking I was about to come out to them or something. Or the looks on their faces being like, she just said she's androgynous. Does that mean she's realized she's queer? Did she just come out to me? And me being like, what the hell is going on? Why are you looking at me like that? I remembered all the confused looks of girls who must have thought we were on the same page, but then they're realizing, oh, she doesn't fully realize she's into me. And then they'd walk away kind of annoyed or maybe low-level hurt, and I was left wondering, what just happened? What what did I do? I thought we were totally vibing, but like in a girly girlfriend platonic way because, again, my mind was stuck in that box. And then, going back to the androgynous thing, at the time when this self-realization occurred, I'd been wearing my hair for like a year by that point, in a faux hawk with the sides and back of my head shaved and my curly locks angled and flowing down the side of my face. So I definitely had that androgynous look going on, which maybe was just another way this all was showing up externally before I realized it internally. And I remember thinking how this kind of also explained why I'd always find myself identifying with the husbands of my girlfriends when they would complain about stuff that was pissing them off about their dudes or arguments they were having I'd laugh because it was as if they were describing arguments I'd had so many times with my own husband at the time, except the roles were reversed. My friends were getting pissed at their husbands for the same things he'd be getting pissed at me for. And I'd always felt a kind of kinship, a sense of community with the LGBTQIA plus community at large, and a deep admiration for them living their truths out loud. With this new realization about myself, it's been interesting living in the intersection of being a biracial white Latina born in the Pacific Northwest to a white mom and a Mexican dad and not feeling Latina enough because we didn't speak Spanish at home growing up. I wasn't born in the motherland and I'm just so white. And now stepping into the LGBTQIA plus spaces has brought up similar emotions in me. I feel nervous like I do when speaking Spanish with native speakers and worrying I'll say something wrong or like they'll judge me. And now in this space, All that was coming up for me too, as if I'll say something wrong and I won't be accepted. Or like I'll receive the same hate for not being queer enough or something since I figured this out so late in life. Even just saying LGBTQIA+, I feel like I have to say it fast so it sounds like I'm fluent. 
just like I feel like I have to do when speaking Spanish, somehow proving my belonging, my non-heterosexualness. And this all got me to thinking about labels in general. The label my friend in the coffee shop had used when describing the soul recognition experience was pansexual. And so I thought, oh, I'm pansexual then. That label didn't even exist when I was a teen, wasn't even an option. So no wonder I was confused, as if the labels have to be invented, the options listed out, and then we can figure out where we fit. But then a few weeks after that coffee shop day, I looked up pansexual on the internet and found nothing similar to what my friend had described beyond a piece that said people use the term pansexual to mean a few different things, kind of molding it to their experience. And when I asked my friend about it, she didn't remember using that word and said she usually just describes it and sometimes different labels will come out. So maybe the soul recognition piece doesn't have a name yet, or maybe pansexual is the closest umbrella overarching term that encompasses me too, which is so similar to labels like Latina, biracial, multiracial, even Mexican-American. There are all these huge umbrella terms that so many humans with quite varying experiences can fit under. Maybe someday all these labels will evolve and grow and become something more specific. But this is the current iteration of the labels that describe me, that free me and allow me to know myself better, but also confine me. And I have to believe and tell myself it's okay to not have the right words, the right labels, and it's okay to say them slowly. Hey everyone listening, my name is Caitlin, I'm bisexual, I use she her pronouns, and I'm currently a high school student. The song I'm about to share with you is called You Are Loved. The song describes how if you keep persevering through tough challenges, you'll find a way to make it out and get to a safe place. While writing and producing this song, I wanted to share the message that everyone has a place, belongs, and simply is loved. On a more musical note, I also wanted to incorporate some text painting into my piece by adding in a bridge that leads to an ascending key change that goes hand in hand with the lyrical change. I loved being able to produce this song both vocally and on my ukulele. Well, without further ado, here's my song, You Are Loved.
That's the end of our episode. Thank you for listening. Visit our website at www.octc.org to support more programs like this one. A family resource guide can be found in the podcast description. If you need support, we have other resources for you in the description as well. And don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes. This episode was created and performed by Anna, Brenda, Caitlin, Melly, and Vanessa. This project was directed by Cambria Hededa. Co-directed with music direction by Ash. Co-directed by Marisa Sanchez and Justin Charles. Sound design and editing by Jason Rouse. 